This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I last week launched into Genesis chapter 3, as we're taking some time to study through at least the... the you know, the first part of the early parts of the of the book of Genesis, some of the really interesting things about the stories of creation and the fall and we'll get to the flood. And there's just, you know, it's all kinds of really, you know, they you could say that they're that they're fantastical stories, but they're in the Bible. They really happened. And, and understanding the imagery and understanding, as Sam often says, the why uh, more so even than the how uh, behind these stories is really something that uh, it's it's educational, it's informative, it's God communicating these truths to us and setting the stage for things. And probably no more place, Sam, would you agree, than in Genesis 3? Yeah, one of the things you find in Genesis 3 is this departure from most of the philosophies of the world. You know, Genesis 3 comes to us with the honesty that there's something with us that's wrong. Um, and, and not just the world, inside of us, it recognizes there's something inside of us that's wrong or broken that, that I think everybody, if they're really being honest with themselves, recognizes there's something in us that's become self-absorbed and destructive. And so, like, you look at Genesis 3, and to use the word you just threw out, you know, you can look at it as fantastical, but if you get to the why— of what what God is communicating in Genesis 3, it, it's one of the most practical chapters in the entire Bible. And like you say, um, when you're looking at this, the, the core element is that there's something that's wrong inside of us. That's not a popular no. point of view today. I think that if we went and, and rounded up, you know, 10 people on the street or 100 people on the street that what 90 of them would say or or some high number high percentage would say no i think people are basically decent for sure i I think that would probably be the case maybe until recently i think here lately we've (laughs) we've got we've got an acute understanding that something's wrong with humanity here lately and there's certainly true that some people are worse than others. I'm not trying to say mm-hmm. that, that we're all, you know, Adolf Hitler. I think we all have the potential to be that sinful. I don't think that there's anything special about us, but we just haven't maybe gone as far as some of, you know, there's mass murderers and terrible people out there, but all of us have at our core, we have this flaw of self-centeredness and serving of self and, and turn, looking inward to please the God that is us. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and, you know, people will say, oh, I think mankind is basically, basically good. There was a, there was a, actually a poll that was recently done where they went around and they asked evangelicals, do you believe that mankind is basically good? Like human nature is good? Or do you believe that human nature is bad? And 70% of evangelicals responded that they believed that humanity was basically good. That's so wild. Uh, isn't it? And so, like, if you're hearing that and it's jarring because you're like, wait, wait a minute, I believe that, you know, the reality is, is if you get really honest with yourself, you know, because it's a nice platitude to say, oh, I believe humanity's good and what a wonderful world. We can all sing that, you know, kumbaya. But the reality is, as in your daily practice, 
you recognize the fallen nature of man. You know, you, you put locks. You lock your front door when you leave to go to work. You right. put passwords and codes on your computer and, you know, every throughout all of your life. I mean, you could just think of example after example of ways where you go, ah, I don't trust humanity. <laughs> well, right. why don't you trust them? Because they're so good? <laughs> no, you you don't trust them because you know that there's something wrong with us. We're selfish. You know, it's, it's, un, we have to be trained out of that selfishness or mm-hmm. changed out of that selfishness. And I think we all have had those dark impulses at times. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been times when, you know, uh, I've read a, a news story, for example, about something just heinous that somebody has done to an innocent victim out there. And my desire for retribution that involves a wood chipper goes right to the movie Fargo. If you ever saw the movie Fargo, um, in, in my mind, I it's like, it goes right to the wood chipper. I want to take this evil person, this bad person that's hurt a child or hurt a woman or hurt some innocent person. And I just want to put them, you know, not head first, because that's too good for them, feet first into the wood chipper. That's the right. impulse that comes out. That's the anger that flares up in me briefly. I don't act on that. I've never actually committed a homicide. I don't even own a wood chipper. Um, so, but it's there. That that's the so that's the impulse inside yeah. of me. And I'm going to tell you that somebody who truly, at their core, wasn't sinful wouldn't have those impulses yeah. that they have to ignore. The fact that I have to ignore impulses tells me that at the core. I've got mm-hmm. a problem. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and there were some ancients that got this. You know, if you've ever read the the myth of Gyges ring, which shows up in the Lord of the Rings, where there was the creation of this ring that gave you the power to be invisible. Um, what would you do with it? You know, this is a question I used to ask when we were talking about the nature of man when I was teaching middle schoolers and high schoolers. When I would ask the question, if I had a ring that could give you the power of invisibility. Now, let's translate what that means. What it means is you could do something and no one else would know. You right. could you could get away with it. And I give you that ring. What would you do with it? And I'm I'm in Christian schools with really wonderful kids, right? Sure. Yeah. And and what are their reactions? It's all things like, oh man, I'd rob a bank, or I would I would go into the you know the Wells Fargo truck before they close the door, or I would go into the girls' locker room, or you know all these things. Man, if if I didn't if I wasn't going to get busted, if I wasn't going to be held responsible, this is what I do. And I'll tell you what I never heard. And all of the asking, what would you do with Gaiji's ring? I never heard anyone respond. Well, I would just continue to do really good deeds, except it would be so wonderful because no one would know that it was me and I could I could remain anonymous in all of my goodness. Mm. Like, we don't yeah. do that. <laughs> if you come and talk to me about a ring that can make me invisible, I'm thinking of like practical jokes and pranks and, yeah. you know, goofy things like that. But it reveals something in me. And I mean, and and the temptation to, to steal and all that stuff is going to be there as well, you know, to be dishonest or deceptive. That's in us. Right. And so, like, I forget there's a line that was, you know, fairly famous that I'm probably going to butcher. But, you know, I think it was Temple who said, your religion is what you do when no one's looking. Um, you yeah. know, you, you can you can put on your best show and go show everyone how wonderful you are because people are watching. But your religion, like your real faith, what who you really are is what you do when no one's watching. And everybody who hears that, because you are all fallen, and I know it because the Bible says so, <laughs> everybody who hears that goes, gulp. 
Mm-hmm. There's there's something in us that tends toward selfishness. And as we've talked before, like the two greatest commands that Jesus gives is to love God with everything you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. And mm-hmm. our internal bent is love me at all cost, even if it means that I've got to trample over God and others. Mm-hmm. So there's something wrong with humanity. Otherwise, we wouldn't have wars and identity theft and, you know, go down the list. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when here in the in Genesis three, when we're looking at the story of Adam and Eve, we're looking at two people who were innocent, who didn't have that uh, fallen nature mm-hmm. at the time working against them. And yet they still were susceptible to the suggestions of the serpent that God was trying to keep something from them. That that if they just wanted to be like God, all they had to do was just take this fruit. God doesn't want you to have it, not because you're going to die, even though they would, at least spiritually, but because God doesn't want you to be like him. He was playing to their pride. He was playing to their jealousy. Um, and those things, even in somebody who you and I would agree didn't have the fallen nature, didn't have those things about, you know, we, we're on the other side of that fall. You know, we were kind of born behind the eight ball, so to speak. You know, we've, we, we have something that we have to deal with that is our fallen nature. Mm-hmm. They didn't. And yet still they fell. Mm-hmm. If they fell, what hope does anybody else have? You know, if, if people that didn't have those things working against them already still had the seeds required for that to happen, what chance do the rest of us have? Apart from, as you said way back when we first started talking about this, something that changes us. Yeah. I mean, it requires a transformation. Yep. And so as, as we're going to see today, we're going to, we're going to walk through all of these, um, I'll call them curses, but the judgments of God for the fall, when you read them, uh, they, they explain who we are. Um, and they're also going to reveal that Jesus is the one who is the, the remedy for all of these things. He's the only remedy that's mm-hmm. available to us mm-hmm. uh, to heal us of all of these things that are about to be laid on Adam and Eve. So last week we, we went down as far as uh, chapter 3, verse 7. And so we that means that we went through the temptation and we talked about the serpent and we talked about uh, Eve and Adam and the choices that they made and, and the actual, you know, where they did the actual thing. They took the fruit. Why did they take the fruit? So if you missed those, if, if you missed that, you're going to have missed half of this conversation. So please, you know, like hit pause on this episode, like right now, you know, just hit pause. It'll remember where you were. Go back and listen to last week's show if you haven't, because we're just going to kind of pick up with where we left off. So last week they had eaten the fruit and it says that their eyes had been opened and they were aware of their nakedness and they sought a covering. And when we talked about that and that's where we got to at that point. So that's where we're going to pick up next in this week. We're going to be starting in verse eight, which says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, Sam, you had an interesting note about this when we were talking about it. I think actually we weren't recording at the time we talked about it. But that word uh, cool of the day, you had an interesting note about what that actually was. Yeah, so the word cool there is actually the Hebrew word ruach, which can mean wind or spirit or breath. Um, and so the idea is, you know, there's the, the spirit of the day. And you'd, you'd pointed out that in some of the commentaries that you read, 
uh, from ancient other Semitic languages that the idea here is almost like a, a storm. Right. Um, when the when the, the the Lord or the spirit or the wind comes, so it's at the windy part of the day. And so some people said that it's like at the stormy part of the day. Um, I think it's interesting, just as a comment on the on the the original text, but being that almost all translations keep it cool of the day, I think it's probably a safe bet to to stick there. So the idea is there's something windy, something, and also the fact that that they heard rather than seeing him. They didn't see the Lord God walking. They said that they heard the sound of it. I think that's why uh, some of the commentaries were talking about it from the standpoint of, and they recognized that it was really a, a kind of an out there possibility, you know, based on some some nuances of the words, that it could have been like the Lord God came thundering into the garden. You yeah, know, it's like, like like Exodus at Sinai. You know, you're, right. you're not going to miss it. You're not going <laughs> to you, know, you, you, you hear him coming. You're not going to miss it. But um Regardless of that, whether whether the Lord God was being scary <laughs> when he came into the garden or whether they just heard him, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. When I when I thought about that phrase, that the, the man and his wife hid themselves, I know up until that moment, their relationship with God had been one that was, um, you know, they, they were it was it was intimate. It was like God was with them in the garden, just like they were they walked together it says like they were they were together physically literally one of the other things and i think this is like the the bible's first rebuke of religiosity okay. um and, and what i mean by that is they're they're going they're going about their own ways to try to make themselves presentable to god you know oh, maybe these fig leaves will do it and it's totally done out of fear and in my own effort and God is is having none of it. <laughs> you know, the fig leaves aren't sufficient. Um, but but I think there's a lot of people in in religion. What do they do? You know, they they mask themselves up. They try to pretend that you know they're presentable. They cover themselves up with good deeds or whatever, and they try uh, to be presentable to God, even though they're coming to Him out of this sense of of an unhealthy fear. Like, mm -hmm. let, let me please you. Let me try with my efforts to, to be presentable to you. And right out of the gates, God is, and you'll see this by the end of chapter three, the fig leaves aren't going to cut it. Your efforts are not going to cut it. Um, and so I think that's instructive here as well. Um, you know, it's not only have they lost their liberty of, as the end of chapter two says, of being naked and unashamed, where you're just free to be him without this fear of judgment. But now all of a sudden you're under that judgment and what's their first instinct? Let me do something about it. Maybe yeah. I can fix it. I'll put fig leaves over right. myself. And if you go to the Lord trying to be presentable in your own effort, it's just fig leaves. You're, you, you can't do it. Yeah. I had pointed out when we were talking last week uh, that in the first five verses of chapter three, wherever the word you appeared, it actually was a plural. And, mm -hmm. and we had some great fun with that by saying it actually should be y'all in the English translation. Um, but this idea that, that God was addressing, um, that they were being addressed as plurals, that it was man and women together, humankind, people. Um, in verse nine here, that changes. Uh, verse nine, it says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And 
I just wanted to point out that because uh, I have a question about it. The mm-hmm. the word for man and the word for for him and the you there are now very definitely single. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost feels like the Lord God here that the Lord is saying, Adam, this one I need you to answer for. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, is there? Do you get that same sense there that there's a situation where God is saying, you know, Adam, this this was your responsibility. Right. Absolutely. And and that question, where are you? You know, God's not going around going, where'd he go? You know, where is he? Like he's he doesn't know where Adam is. It's very much a question about his position uh, and where he's supposed to be. In oh, other words, so not the, a location, but something yeah, he's else. not okay. saying, hey, are you over here? Are you yes. to the east or the west? Like, that's not what this question means. He's the Lord is walking into a world that now his the prize of his creation, humanity, is now saturated with sin. The effects of sin are now going to be seeping into the world. And it's like the Lord is coming and he's he's looking at Adam and he's like, where where, where are you at? Like, mm-hmm. how, how have you allowed this to happen? Where are you? Um, and that's that's kind of the meaning here. He's calling Adam out on his failure. I also think it's uh, it's comforting for me, at least, to recognize that. Uh, in this situation, that the Lord was seeking them, mm-hmm. that the Lord didn't sit back and go, "Okay, all right, fine, you've eaten from the you've eaten from the fruit, you know what you did. I'm just going to sit over here and wait for you to come talk to me. You know you need to. I'm going <laughs> to wait for you to come talk to me." Mm-hmm. He didn't do that. God went into the garden and and he found them where they were. And again, that to me seems like, like an act of mercy. The mm-hmm. Lord is seeking them, even though they had disobeyed him, he's still looking for them. Yeah, there's a great quote by A.W. Pink, and he says, after the fall, it was not Adam who sought God, but God that sought Adam. And he says, and this has been the order ever since. Yes. And that's absolutely true. When we run off and, and we do dumb things, it's always the Lord who chases us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always the Lord that provokes our heart to seek him. But he's the one who moves first, always. Yeah. Yeah. So then in response to God's question, where God says, where are you? Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Then God had another question. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, (laughs) obviously God knew he had done that, Mm -hmm. you know, we we know how Adam's going to answer in a second. <laughs> and anybody who's following along at home has looked at verse 12, and they see Adam grabbing Eve, looking for the bus. <laughs> he's got her, and he's looking for where where is the A-line bus coming? I'm going to throw her under. You know, do you... God was giving Adam a chance. Was was that was that a chance for Adam to come clean and he failed? or Or was... You know, like the Lord had to know how he was going to answer. Yeah, I think any time the Lord confronts us in our sin, uh-huh. you know, the first part, the first step toward healing is always going to be confession. That That's going to come before repentance. And so here, you know, I, I think what he's getting him to realize is, hey, like, explain yourself. Yeah. Be honest. Come come to the table and, and seek cleansing and mercy. Um, so he says, you know, who told you that you were naked? Like that, that's a very weird thing. And you got to stop because it goes back to this idea. Adam was 
naked and unashamed, like what were clothes? Why would you ever need clothes? He had mm. no context for that. It'd be like asking a fish, who told you you were wet? Well, they don't know any other world besides water. And so now, for the first time, Adam is sensing shame. He needs to cover and hide. He's got to put on the fig leaves. And like we talked about, this kind of religion of making myself presentable to God, that, that had never, he'd never known that before. Mm. And so now he's, he's sensing the shame. God is like, you know, who told you that you were naked? You should have absolute freedom in front of me if you've been obedient, in other words. Right. Like, who told you that you were deficient? And so he knows he's trying to provoke the conscience of Adam. He says, the only way that you would ever know that is if you disobeyed. And so he says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Gulp. And it's the, yeah, <laughs> he's opening the door for the man to say, I've, I really, I have, I've failed. Please forgive me. Right. That's not where Adam goes. Adam was not in the mood to confess. No, the lack, <laughs> the lack of confession here was, was being spread around. Verse 12, Adam, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So it's not just the woman's fault, as Adam says it. Mm -hmm. It's God's fault. Yeah. God, you, you gave this woman to be with me and look what she's done. It, Look what you've done. You know, you did this. Yes, you did this. They wants to. He's pointing a finger. And so we talked God. about this last week, how, you know, at the beginning, you have God who reigns over the man and the woman. Right. And then the man and the woman together are to reign over the creatures. And so what happens in the fall is you have everything that's flipped on its head. And mm -hmm. so now you see the outworking of that. You have the man who is laying a judgment against God. Think about this. Adam is making a moral judgment against God. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> and doesn't that continue again Gosh. to this day? <laughs> it's like this is super relevant. Like is. this is this is daily life as a human being. There are people that we encounter all the time on social media or just in our lives out there. Well, pretty much on social media, because in the COVID era, we're all just living inside our bubbles. Um, I'm hoping that's going to end sometime soon. I'm really tired of the bubble. I have a nice bubble, but I'm tired of the bubble. Yeah. Um, but uh, so the point is we encounter people, whether it's virtually or, or in real 3D space, we encounter people all the time who are pronouncing judgment on God. Well, it's like mankind, men, women, people think nothing of judging God. And I'm thinking, even if I wasn't a believer, um, I probably wouldn't want, you know, it's just, you know, if there's a God, <laughs> if there is a God, I think that I might not want to make him angry. You know, even if I wasn't sure there was a God, I'd want to hedge my bet on the side of, I'm not going to say this about you. <laughs> and yet it seems like people are very comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. So then the woman answers, because the Lord God turns to her, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman, realizing that the bus has just run over her, grabs the serpent round the neck <laughs> and says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the buck passing goes on here. It's like mm -hmm. Adam's like, it's not my fault, God. It's the woman's fault. It's your fault. And the Lord God turns to the women, woman and the woman says, it's the serpent. You know, <laughs> So she's looking down. But guess who put the serpent there? So yeah. by implication, she's also blaming God. True. That is true. But then the Lord God turns his attention to the serpent. And, you know, 
obviously, again, God knows what's going on here. But is there a is there some deeper meaning as to why God spoke first to the serpent rather than dealing with Adam and Eve first? In terms of laying down the the, the first of the curses? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. As we're going to see here, the first mention of hope comes in Genesis 3.15. It's the first expressed promise of the gospel, okay? Mm-hmm. And so one of the interesting things, and I think this is just a is a is a nod to God's mercy, is he's going to say, as we'll see in a minute, I'm going to make all things right. I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to send a savior. And so he gives hope before he gives judgment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just kindness. Like he doesn't he doesn't go to Adam and say I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> you know, I, you're going to return to the dust and I'm going to do all these things to you and Eve without first couching all of it in hope. And that's one of the things that you see in the character of God all throughout the Bible and and you know, probably one of the greatest acts of deliverance that you see in the Old Testament is the Israelites coming out of Egypt, they were enslaved and they have to be led through the Red Sea. And lots of theologians have pointed out that God brings the salvation before he gives them the law, right? So they have to be secure and knowing that they belong to the Lord and that they're his and that he is a rescuer and that he's going to bring salvation before they're then called to obey. Mm-hmm. And the same thing you see right out of the gates in Genesis 3 where he's saying, look, like speaking to Satan, he says, I'm going to rescue mankind. Mm. I'm going to be victorious here. He he gives them that hope so that they have ears to hear the weight of the judgments that are coming. So I think so in the in this first of the of the curses in verses 14 and 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, which is a terrible translation by the ESV, by the way. Mm-hmm. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let me just mention the reason that I say that's a terrible um, you know, uh, translation by the ESV is because of the fact that the word there actually is the word for seed. And you and I realize it's a weird thing for people to hear between your seed and her seed. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a reason why that word was used there. Um, why don't you and I were talking about this the other day. What was the what's the significance of the fact that seed should be used instead of offspring? Yeah, well, seed is in, in the Old Testament. Whenever you hear that word referred, seed is almost always associated with the man. Sure. Like it's a man's seed. It's right. his, you know, offspring. His usually. genetic material. Yeah. Right. Usually offspring would work. But in here, it very much does not work. <laughs> and it's not meant to work. The whole reason why it uses this word is it's to make you scratch your head and go, wait a minute. Why didn't it say, you know, I'm going to put enmity between you and the man, between your offspring and his offspring. Right. And what it's communicating is, you know. Any normal human being, you would say his seed, right? right? His seed. Right. But here it's saying her seed. Why? Because the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent and put an end to this war, is going to be the seed of a woman. Why does God have to say that? Because he's not going to be the seed of a man. Right. 
well, what does that mean? Where does that lead you? <laughs> it leads you to the virgin birth that says, you know, here you're going to have the seed of the woman, virgin birth, but it's not going to be a human as the father. It's going to be God Almighty. When somebody asks the question, hey, Sam, why do you think Genesis 3.15 is, is a prophecy of Christ? That's the answer, because it's her seed, not his seed. It's, you know, and there's only one person who's ever lived that has been the seed, humanly speaking, physically speaking, of just a woman, and that's yeah. Jesus. It says that he shall bruise your head. You sh- he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Mm-hmm. That, again, I, I mean... I always thought that the word <laughs> bruise there, he shall bruise your head. I always thought that was crush your head. It is. Okay. So it can be both, but it's crush. Okay. And that's just something like this should have been obvious. And I hate picking on the ESV because all their editors are light years smarter than either one of us. Sure. But like that's just something in the ancient world. When you talked about defeating an enemy and it involved the head, the idea was crushing their head, meaning there's no possibility for them to be alive. This isn't talking like, oh, you got a knot on your forehead. Like, no, <laughs> this is you are dead. Your head is crushed. That's the idea. And so the then the, the flip side of that is he will bruise your heel or strike your heel. The idea is, you know, this is a serpent. It's a venomous serpent. And so you know, as you're crushing the head, the the fangs of the serpent are going to come around and lodge into your heel. Well, that's that's not a definitively deadly thing, but it is a serpent, remember? A venomous serpent is the idea. And so that is going to be a mortal wound also. And so it's saying, which is just a bizarre thing. Think how crazy this prophecy is. Hey, my hero is going to be is going to kill you, but you're going to kill him in the process. Like who makes that kind of a promise? It's just a bizarre prophetic statement here where the Messiah is going to crush the head of the serpent. But the serpent is going to strike his heel in the process. Um it's totally pointing you to the gospel. Well, what happens with Jesus? In his death and resurrection, he is going to crush sin and death, the, the kingdom of darkness. He's going to defeat it once and for all. And how is he going to go about that? By enduring a mortal wound from the serpent. Mm-hmm. Because, quite frankly, it doesn't make any sense if it's just in both cases, if it's just the word bruise, right. it doesn't make any sense um, because it kind of sounds like, <laughs> you know, it just it's it's like, yeah, they're going to bruise each other. It just makes it sound like no big deal. Yeah. Um, and in fact, and it would be no big deal. Yeah. Oh, no, you've bruised me. <laughs> yeah. So in this case, it's a you know, because it's a it's a it doesn't make sense as a prophecy of Jesus to have it be offspring instead of seed or to have it be bruised instead of crush. Um, because this is setting up that, as you say, it's setting up that, you know, mortal conflict between them. And and so to understand, because some of you are probably listening, going, how in the world is, you know, this pointing to the Savior? And the way that God is is communicating this is very artistically done. And so you have to read the whole passage in context. So like when you get further down, when he's laying the curses or the consequences of the fall upon Adam, he's going to say that Adam is going to return to the dust, right? For you are dust and to dust you shall return are the last words that he speaks to Adam. So take that 
in in context now now think about what he's promising to the serpent right he's saying cursor you above all livestock above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you will eat well put those two together if the serpent now the chief feast of the serpent is now going to be the dust of the ground and god is telling the man all of humanity is now cursed to return to the dust what that's communicating is that our death is his feast, like Satan feeds on our death, our destruction, like that he devours it. And a day is going to come when someone is going to crush the head of the serpent, and he is going to make an end to that feast. So this mm-hmm. is talking very cosmic, eternal consequences. He is going to put an end to the banquet table of death. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really fascinating. And how is he going to do that? I mean, when you think in terms of the gospel, it's like Jesus stepped in front of the truck for us to steal your metaphor from earlier. <laughs> uh, because w- what was it? We were condemned to become a feast for Satan. And what does Jesus do? He steps in front and says, no, I'm giving you life. And how does he do it? By becoming a feast for us. Yeah. You know, he says, this is my body broken and given for you. This is my blood. And he's saying, consume me, feast on me, spiritual nourishment, life, everything. Take it from me and I'll give my life away. And so that's the Savior that from Genesis 3.15, the very first pronouncement of the gospel and express terms that all of humanity, at least faithful humanity, from this point forward, this is the hope in which they find their salvation. Mm-hmm. They're looking back to the promise that God is going to redeem the world by sending the seed of the woman to crush the one who brings sin and death. Mm-hmm. So after he's pronouncing the curse on the serpent, then God turns to the woman. And in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Um, couple of couple of things there again, and and the first question I have is: Is this verse implying that apart from the the curse that God lays here, as apart from the actions of place, that there would be no physical pain in childbearing? I have to believe it's yeah. talking about something else. I don't. Well, it says multiply your pain, which well, if you're multiplying pain. There had, I mean, there had to be pain in the first place, right? right? There's some kind, something going on in childbirth, and he's making it to where it's, you know, I guess before it might have been a discomfort <laughs> or well, something, you know. Where we're now, it's excruciating. You, you and I are both fathers. We've mm-hmm. both been, you know, around a childbirth happening, and it's a large object being move through a <laughs> relatively small anatomical area. Um, I just, you know, you're really like, cleaning this up, Mark. I'm trying to. <laughs> the point is, it's going to hurt, you know. Um, and and so I just, I don't know. I, this is one of those things that I've always looked at and I've always thought, you know, I wonder if it's to some extent a metaphorical statement or not metaphorical, but if he's talking about pain in other aspects like um you know i'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing and pain shall bring forth children that it's not just talking about birth mm-hmm. but it's talking about correct you know how okay 
your children are going to disappoint you. They're going, you're going to be fearful for them. You know, your whole, because of what's happened here today, things aren't going to go well for your children and Mm -hmm. your children's children. And you're going to see them messing up and you're going to see problems out there. And that's going to hurt you a lot. Mm -hmm. Dum Dum over there who threw you under the bus is going to walk around (laughs) going, "Ah, that's too bad. That boy doesn't learn anything, but you're going to feel this in Mm -hmm. your heart because I have, um, I've been yeah. in that position where I've had a child that did something that was that was wounding to parents, and mm-hmm. uh, my wife took it very differently than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quiet with her. It was it it cut her on the inside. It was a you know me. I'm like, and then it was over. Okay, yeah. you know, it's like I shrugged it off after that. But my wife held it and thought about it and 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 for her letting go of it is a longer process one that's actually still ongoing even in some aspects and the point of that is to say that i just sometimes wonder whether god's not telling women telling the woman that okay here's what's going to happen you know because of this fall today your children are going to be a pain to you in some emotional sense mm-hmm. and, and i think that's absolutely right and and when you look at this conversation that god is having with the serpent the woman and the man you see a pattern emerge that i think is undeniable and and every curse or judgment that the lord lays down he's going to frustrate what's at the core of that being mm-hmm. he's he's going to make it difficult and so like if if i were to say hey give me the chief pursuit of Satan or the serpent, you'd say, man, he's power hungry. He wants the throne. He's a rebel. He's constantly trying to tear God's kingdom down, right? right. He wants he wants power, in other words. So what is God's curse upon him? I'm going to take you and I'm going to throw you on your belly. I'm going to take you who wants to be at the heights and I'm going to reduce you to the floor. Then you get to the woman, and what's her great desire? I mean, and this is a little simplistic, but like you just talked about, that's the same same with my family. That's true of of Laura and I. You know, I'm the guy, too. Um, And so God is going to take familial relationships, which I think, you know, pretty typically hits women much, much harder than men, typically. And that becomes the point of pain. You know, it's all about children. And as you see, it's, it's all about, you know, you're going to you're going to long for your husband and he's going to rule over you. So it's all these familial relationships that now become difficult and painful. Um, and And that is the way that God comes. And I think there's a you know, we look at that and go, well, that's sadistic <laughs> you know, like you know he's 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 hitting what's most precious and i want to stop for a moment what god is doing is incredibly merciful because he realizes if we try to find our identity in anything other than him if we find our safety our purpose our value in anything other than than him it hurts us and so, like, this is some kind of a – it's an object lesson at the fall where God is going to say, okay, if you think your ultimate value is to be found in anything other than me, try it. Try mm. it. Okay. And you're, gonna, you're going to discover, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be true for the woman and the man and the judgments that are laid down. You find that, no, it, it doesn't work that way. He has to be your greatest prize. He's got to be your greatest treasure because if you try to put anything in front of him, life turns into a mess. And, and there's a, there's a poetry, by the way, 
to what's going on when God lays these down. So like you have the woman, right? What's the curses given to her? You know, your, your, your love is going to be for your husband and he's going to rule over you. Well, what did she try to do to God, right? Here, here's God who longs for Eve, who's, who, who loves her with infinite measure, who wants intimacy with her. He longs for her. And what did Eve choose? She chose to rule. And so now it's almost like God is going to say, hey, I've experienced the pain of what you just did to me. Like I came to you with my heart wide open. I, I, I dote over you. I mean, I know this sounds extreme, but this is reality. God has an infinite measure of love for Eve, provides her with a garden, does everything for her. And what did she say? I'll take power. I, I'll dismiss you. I'll rule over you. I'll take this. And God says, okay, I want you to see how this feels now. You're, you're going to experience what I just experienced at your hand because your husband, who you chase after, who you find your identity in, who you seek to love and to make number one, now he's going to rule over you. You're going to experience the pain that I've experienced. And we're learning. I think, I think these things, you know, when the healthiest place a person can come is when they're chasing after idols. You know, I, I can't tell you in, in marriage counseling how many people I come across where either the husband or the woman, and usually it's more often than not the woman, she finds her identity and whether the husband loves her adequately. Like, does he love me? Maybe if I do this, and maybe if I do this, and maybe if I do this. And she's enslaved trying to win his approval or some measure of love. And it makes her life enslaving. It makes her feel cheap. It makes her sad. And what, as a pastor, guess what my advice is? Like, no, you do not seek your value. You don't seek your identity or, and, and your husband. You can't. It will break you. You'll, you'll be a mess. You have to go to the Lord. Your identity is in him. Your value is in him. He is the one who sets your worth. And when you go to him and you realize how amazingly precious and valuable you are in his sight, then you can manage life with a husband, right? And it's not wrecking you every time he fails you. And, and that it's God's mercy that lays down these judgments because ultimately what he's saying is come to the one who will never fail you. Come to the source of love that will never let you down, that never ebbs. Like, I'm yours. Come to me. He knows the safest and best place for us is with him. And so the consequences of the fall are teaching us that lesson. Yeah. It's a merciful lesson. Yeah. Hmm. The other uh, thing that I have to ask about verse 16 is, uh, and again, this is kind of like a, this, this again, it always feels like I'm picking on the ESV and I'm really, <laughs> you like, are, <laughs> I am, but you know, look, I understand that these guys are a lot smarter than you and I are when it comes to Bible translation. <laughs> However, I will throw down and suggest that maybe they're not a lot smarter than every other smart person that's ever worked on every <laughs> other Bible translation that's out there. Agree. And so if every other Bible translation that's out there has a certain word translated a certain way and they alone have blazed their own trail, it should make your radar pop up and you should ask yourself, hmm, I wonder if there's a thing about that. And of course, mm -hmm. I'm getting to that part in verse 16 where it says your desire and in this case in the ESV now reads shall be contrary um, to your husband now in. Do you want to explain how the ESV versions have changed? Well, it, OK, yes, uh, the 
the ESV was released originally in uh, 2001, and uh, it had this verse translated pretty much the way that every other English translation still has it translated, which is either for or to, um, and then or toward. Uh, and then there was a there was a you know the original the original ESV in 2001. There was a minor update a few years later. There was a major update in 2007. Another minor update in 2011. And then in 2016, they came out with what is the current revision of the ESV, um, and that is the uh, what they were. And, and at first they said this is the permanent text version of the ESV. We're done changing <laughs> the ESV, and that's where they changed this word to contrary. Uh, instead of wah, for wah. or to or toward, they made it contrary. Yeah. Now, when they said this is the permanent text of the ESV, and they actually printed that in some ESV Bible saying, you know, uh, when they talked about the text version, it said, you know, copyright 2016 permanent text edition. Well, that lasted about 90 days when everybody started calling them on, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? Then they started backing off and saying, you know what? You know what? That's nah, not permanent anymore. We're not, we're still going to, now they haven't, to my knowledge, um, come out with text revisions after 2016. So that's, a, that's something it's 2020. It's been four years, but they're no longer promising that they won't. One of the things, and this is as you can, as you can probably tell from my tone of voice, I'm a guy that likes you to put your Bible translation out there and leave it alone. Although the King James left it alone for 400 <laughs> years. The new King James, once it was done, you know, they, they came out in, in 1980, 79 was the New Testament, 82 was the full Bible, 84 was a minor revision, you know, fixing a few things here and there. And since 1984, it's been left alone. The new American Standard, they, they came out in 1977. In 1985, they came out with one that left it alone. Now they're doing a 2020 revision. I don't mind if you update your translation every so often i understand that that new new manuscripts appear new tr and people get better at things or or you just want to rewrite it so that it reflects different a different tone or sense or appeals to a different crowd maybe i don't know um but my point is it just drives me crazy yeah. when they keep fiddling with things in ways that change the meaning yeah this and radically changes it so does it's the your desire, desire for or toward to contrary that's a big switch yeah so one makes it sound like, oh, you're longing for your husband. The other one makes it sound like you want to hit him with a frying pan. Yes. Like, it, totally different. And so just so you understand, like the Hebrew word under this, it's not like, you know, we're in danger of not knowing what the Bible says. The Hebrew word here is all in it. Imagine me leaning against a wall, right? That could be leaning against. It could be leaning into the wall. It could be leaning toward the wall. That's the idea is it's pressing toward. And so they chose to translate this against, which is the total wrong way to translate it. It should be your desire is pressing into your husband. But you can understand how that word sometimes is translated against. Right. Right. So, yeah, the idea is that it's like leaning against a wall. Mm -hmm. So how would you then say, what is this when it says your desire shall be to your husband, but mm -hmm. he shall rule over you? What what do you think that's then saying? What's God telling the woman? You're you're going to want him like you're going to want his affection. You're going to you're going to want his embrace, but he's going to take advantage of that and rule over you. Yeah. I, I, I take it as like exploitative almost like yeah. you're, you're going to want tenderness and intimacy from him and he is just going to exploit you. 
I happen to agree with that, that does, which is not surprising. We agree on many things in this respect. But the reason I agree with that is that then that fits in with what I think God was saying with the pain thing. He, where, where he was saying you're going to have your pain is going to multiply in childbirth. This idea that your offspring are going, your children and your children's children are going to disappoint you, cause wounding, cause hurting. Then she's I do going think to- it has a childbirth element to that, by the way. Like, I think childbirth is more painful as a result, but I think it's also child rearing. Yeah. And I think that this is saying that, okay, your relationship with your husband is going to be emotionally painful also because mm-hmm. of this. Um, and, and again, it's not because it's a, it, the funny thing is, is that you, you look at this and say, oh, so God, condemned you know it's women are having pain because god wants them to women are dealing with exploitative men because god wants them to no 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 what's happening here is god is telling them what the result of this is going to be they've made a choice they chose to turn against god they wanted to be like god without having god they made that choice now as a result of that as a result of the spiritual death that has happened these are going to be the consequences rather than i i understand the yeah it's not and a that, curse it's almost like a prediction or a pronouncement you know yeah this is so yeah that's a good point this is not god god saying hey here's what i want this is these are the consequences of yeah. what you've unleashed exactly and this is this which, is what's going way, to happen which the savior of the world, the seed of the woman is going to have. And we'll talk about this in a minute. The seed of the woman is going to come, which is Jesus, the savior of the world. He's going to come and overthrow every single one of these consequences of the fall. He's going to take them upon himself. So these these are not things that God goes, oh, yay. These are things that are the consequences of disobedience. They're right. not good. Right. And I, I just wanted to mention that just because it does, there are times when people extend, you know, God did, God did tell the serpent, cursed are you? You know, he did pronounce mm-hmm. a curse upon the serpent. But when he speaks to the woman and when he speaks to the man, he doesn't say, I'm cursing you with this. He's just mm-hmm. telling them, these are the consequences of your actions. Mm-hmm. So then to, to the man in verses 17 and 19, and to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And I think there's an interesting thing to talk about there. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So God gave the the mission to the man and the woman to say, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, not mm-hmm. not get it in a wrestling. We, like we talked about this, not get it in a headlock and subdue it, but to to work it, to to cultivate it, to make it beautiful, to make it better. Right. And so now what he's saying is that mission will fail. Yeah, this is, I guess, partly because I'm a man, so I experience this. And I think anybody, and I think all of humanity experiences this, but I think it's acute, again, I think it's acutely to men where we have this mission mindset, like we want to go out and create and conquer and and do these things. And we have our plans and we're going to accomplish everything. And God is coming right out of the gates and saying, "You're, you're going to want to do all that, but everything is going to work against you. 
nothing is going to come easy. And oh, by the way, you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to go to work and you're going to stress about work and you're going to stress about bank accounts and you're going to stress about providing for your family and you're going to worry about job security and all the things that are totally unpredictable. And you're going to slave away for your entire life trying to build this petty, you know, like a sandcastle on the beach. And at the end of the day, guess what? The wave is going to come and take it all away. Mm-hmm. So no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you sweat, no matter how, what you do, you're still returning to the dust. So what we're saying is that these three verses in Genesis chapter 3 are actually three verses out from the middle of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, like it is heavy. And, and it's saying not only are you going to have to work knowing that you're going to return to the dust, but it's going to be painful in the meantime. You're going to have thorns and you're going to have thistles. Now he's using ag- agrarian metaphors. But what does that mean in our life? I mean, you can think, what are your thorns and thistles in your life? It's, you know, you're chasing after a Goal, and there's all these things that yeah. cause pain and frustration. That's what this is after. It's saying no matter how you're you're geared toward this, and it's, everything is going to work against you. And so you remember how there's a sense of poetic justice with Eve. You know that God longed for her, and she chose to rule, and so now she experiences that. With Adam, there's also the same sense of poetic justice because God has experienced exactly what he's laying down upon Adam. And and what you say, how does that work, Sam? Well, God brought this whole creation into being, right? And he goes to Adam and Eve and he says, hey, I want you to be, you know, kind of my ambassadors to the world. Here's my plan. Here's this beautiful, you know, architectural blueprint that I've given you in the garden. I want you to take this beauty, this amazing blueprint, and I want to, I want you to take it to the ends of the earth and I'm, I want you to do this. And what does Adam do? Adam, who is God's creature, right, who is supposed to do what God calls him on, says, I'm not going to do it. Right. I refuse. I rebel. And so now the consequence that God is laying down on Adam, just as Adam rebelled against God, God is saying now the whole creation, which is supposed to be under your authority, is going to rebel against you. And you're going to experience how heartbreaking it is because I had a great plan. I wanted to make this world beautiful. I wanted to do something really special. And you chose to rebel against me. Now you're going to feel what it's like when the creation rebels against you. Mm -hmm. I also think that, like you say, these are agrarian uh, metaphors or, mm-hmm. or, or, and I think that also has to do with the fact that what did, what did Adam do? What Adam did was he ate something <laughs> that he wasn't mm-hmm. supposed to eat. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like the punishment fits the crime in this sense. He says, you know, you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, which I commanded you shall not eat of it. Well, let's talk about eating then. You're going to, you know, you're going to need to eat the plants of the field and it's going to be thorns and thistles. You're going to need to eat bread by the sweat of your face. Mm-hmm. It's like this, this whole thing of, He's telling him that this area that you chose to try to take dominance over or control over, this is now going to become your particular uh, falling. I just think it's, I, I've always believed that the that the reason for the um, the the sort of agrarian references is that it was kind of an agrarian crime, sure, you know, to some yeah. extent, and it would definitely be what he knew. And and so when when you look at all of this, like think of the frustration of of having to go out and give your life over to something you know ends in the grave. I mean, 
And so, like, I remember when I – one of the questions I used to get when I was teaching middle school. So it's a great question is, do you think Adam and Eve are going to be in heaven or did mm-hmm. they go to sure. hell? Right. And, you know, one of the things that is – I'm convinced that they – that we will see Adam and Eve in heaven. And one of the reasons why you see that – and this is – Maybe theologically dense. So if you're falling asleep, wake up <laughs> to, to follow. Um, but you got to think about this. What is in verse 15 when God is talking to the serpent? He says that the hope of mankind is to be found where? In the seed of the woman, right? In other words, she's going to have to give birth. That's the hope of mankind. All the hope is in the seed of the woman, this savior that's coming. And so if the hope of mankind is in the birth of a savior and the pain is then directly tied to an increased pain in childbirth, what God is asking her to do is to put suffering before glory. Mm. And there's this weird show. So she's got to say, okay, I'm willing to endure these heightened birth pains because birth Keeping the line going until the Savior comes, birth, which is now, you know, has this consequence of pain, gives me hope. And so I'm willing to lay down my comfort to grab hold of hope. Right? Mm-hmm. So Eve, this is kind of fun. Eve is going to be saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Do you get that? She's got to have faith that the Savior is going to come. She doesn't know his name. She doesn't know it's going to be Jesus. She doesn't know it's going to be thousands of years from then. But she has faith that God is going to bring him, the seed of the woman, who's going to save the world and put an end to death and put an end to sin. So Eve is saved by faith alone through Christ alone. And so Adam, when he does the same thing and he perseveres and he presses into the pain and he... He, he has faith that he's not acting in futility. He doesn't just run off and off himself, you know, like he endures for right. the hope of salvation. And so you see pictures of their faith in this as well. Now, you made reference before that when we before we got to this sort of the, the section of the curses here, you said that Jesus takes the curses upon himself. What did you what did you mean by that? Yeah, this is, I think, one of my very, very favorite things about the fall is, you know, we've we've talked about how God is laying down these consequences, and they're poetic. It's like he wants them to understand what he's gone through, and so he lays down these consequences. But in the person of Jesus, you see every single one of these curses that the same God who is saying to Adam and Eve and delivering these judgments, that same God will become a man— And he is going to take all of these judgments upon himself. And so how do you see that play out? Well, one of the first consequences of the fall was that Adam and Eve were naked, right, and ashamed. Can you think of a time when Jesus is going to be naked and ashamed? On the cross, yeah. Right. He's going to be stripped of his clothing. Why? So that you can be clothed in his righteousness. Mm. So, So Adam and Eve are clothed in his righteousness because he's going to be stripped and made ashamed. You know, Adam and Eve, you know, there was a sense where they're kicked out of the garden and they're abandoned. Can you think of when Jesus might have experienced that? You know, on the cross, he's going to cry out, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus is going to experience real rejection in that moment as he's cloaked and drenched in our sin so that we can rest in his embrace. Uh, Eve has a spouse that she loves desperately. 
who rules over her and, and is abusive. Can you think of Jesus's spouse? You know, what happens there? He comes loving his bride. And what does his bride do? Rejects him. She rejects him. She crucifies him. Yeah. And and he's going to be the bridegroom. Now, birth pains, that's where you're like, okay, what is he going to do with this one? <laughs> <laughs> but what's one of the biggest metaphors of salvation? You know, when he when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, what does he say? If you if you you're want the kingdom again, of heaven, yeah. right? You must be born again. Well, okay, so who bears – because it's not like you go, you know, climb back into your mother and you're not born again. Jesus makes that point. So who experiences the agony of that birth? Jesus does, right. right? It's through his pain that you're born again and you become a child of God. Thorns, mm-hmm. well, that, you don't have to think long and hard about that. Crown the first thorns. physical manifestation that's laid upon Adam and Eve of, of a curse, Jesus takes, and think of the beauty here. Jesus doesn't just suffer thorns. They become his crown. Mm. In other words, Jesus is made our king because he, he enters into our suffering. That's, that's his crowning moment when he takes the curse of man and takes it upon himself. And now, you know, because he has taken the crown of cursing, we receive the crowns of righteousness. You know, you think of labor, right? Okay, you're going to have to sweat for your bread. And Jesus comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he do? There's this famous passage where he sweats, but there's something special about that sweat. You know, he's going to sweat far more intensely than anyone ever has in his labor of salvation. He's going to sweat blood. And why does he do that? So that he can give the bread of life freely to us. It's not by our labor and our sweat that we sweat for the spiritual bread. No, Jesus endured that sweat to a greater degree of agony and misery than anyone in this world can relate to. And why does he do it? So that he can provide the bread of life to you freely and so that you can find rest for your souls. You know, death is another one. Adam and Eve are, you know, they're, they're going to return to the dust. They're going to experience death. And it's like with every one of these curses, nakedness, Jesus is like, no, that's mine. Abandoned, mine. Abused, mine. Birth pains, mine. Thorns, mine. And you get to death and it's like Jesus swallows it up. He, he takes the entire feast of death and swallows it up, the scriptures say. Why? So that you have the gift of eternal life, so that you can feast on him forever. And, and he takes even that curse where we're condemned to become the dust that Satan devours as a feast. No, Jesus becomes the feast. So every curse that you see laid down in Genesis 3, think how awesome this is. That very same God is so absolutely committed in love that he will look at every one of these things as he lays them down on Adam and Eve. And he's ultimately already knows in his mind, I'm going to take that one. I'm going to take that one. I'm going to take that one. And so the idea is when you're going through this life, he is the first treasure. He's the one who redeems all of this and undoes all of these curses. He reverses the curses. It's it's amazing. It's really brilliant. And it's like, you know, we talk about how all of Scripture is inspired, <laughs> you know. Here in Genesis, it's laying these things down. And in the Gospels, Jesus will pick them all up mm. and say, mine. Mm. I will not let my bride suffer these things. They're mine. Hmm. He's, he's a far better Adam. Hmm. 
you know, I also know your fondness for how things, you know, like reverse themselves. Like you have this chiastic structures of things. You you really enjoy finding those. And I was just thinking about this as we were talking about it, that the first blessing that God gave them was what? He said, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, childbearing. So childbearing children was going to be that greatest blessing, that first blessing to the man and the woman. And then the serpent defeated them in a way by by deceiving them by luring them and so that blessing was taken away they're not going to have the same blessing that they would and then however it's through childbearing that the serpent would someday be destroyed or defeated and the blessing would be restored so it's like you know it's like it's just interesting to me how it's sort of an ordered pair there it's like it began with Hmm. this blessing of childbirth being taken away by the serpent and then the childbirth although through birth pangs defeating the serpent and restoring the blessing yeah and and exactly what you're mentioned that's exactly where this 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 text goes if you look at verse 20 so god has just gotten done announcing all of the judgments on the serpent and the woman and the man and then in verse 20 which is it seems like it's out of order right in verse 20 it says the man called his wife's name eve because she was the mother of all living and you go why in the world is this there? Why didn't he, why didn't this go back in Genesis 2? You know, it seems like that would be where he names her. But get what's, get what's happening here. God has just promised you're going to die. Those are the last words out of God's mouth. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And then Adam looks at Eve and says, you're the mother of the living. Like, why not the mother of the dying? Right. You know, what, what Adam is saying is, I believe that you will bring life to Eve, right? The seed right. of the woman. Right. And so he's looking and saying, you're going to be the mother of the living. Yeah. And in response to that faith, what does God do in verse 21? He, he says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And that, by the way, is my favorite verse in chapter three. Cool. Because it shows the Lord being merciful. Mm. It's like they're naked and ashamed and hiding and fallen and what does god do yes there are consequences they're going to get put out of the garden in just a second there are consequences he's just pronounced the woes upon them that are going to happen as a result of it but what does god actually do he clothes them he gives them Mm -hmm. something warm and comfortable to where he provides for their needs he covers their shame and their embarrassment it's like i I don't know that's just so beautiful to me it's just this picture of the lord saying oh Sam, Mark, I know. Okay. Yeah, it's tender. Yeah. It's very tender. It's a very, very tender moment, I think. Yeah, it's cool. So he's just announced these judgments, and then he has this moment where he draws near so that they know that he is still for them, that he still loves them, that he's with them before he escorts them out. You know, right. it's it's not like this reactive God. You know, that's really that's really cool, Mark. He doesn't just say, get out, you know. Right. He he takes time to be with them and to comfort them and prepare them before you get to the, the next section. And that's he's really, also that's cool. He's also clothing them. I mean, we mm-hmm. talked about, you know, this idea that he's that that the stripping away and the clothing of things is that he's he's clothing them in the garments that he's made for them. I think that's also 
you know, just, it's just a, it's like I say, verse 21 is my favorite verse of chapter three. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people will, a lot of people will point out that the idea that he says, he looks at these fig leaves, right? Yep. You know, those things are going to rot and go away in a hurry. Right. Um, but a lot of people point out that the fact that he makes garments out of skin, you know, these are the first animals, blood sacrifices that are going to be slain, right? Right. And it's, it's an anticipation that to get a covering, to be covered, Something is going to have to spill blood and die for you to be clothed. And when you get to the New Testament, you know, Paul, your boy, like he is constantly talking about this. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. The perishable must clothe itself with imperishable. You know, we're longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Uh, Galatians says, all you who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And so ultimately, God is looking to the day when the seed of the woman is going to be slain and his righteousness, his covering will be put over you. That's this tender God. And so when you're walking through a season of hardship where you're thinking, man, does he love me? Take a, let him take this moment. This is the tenderness where he's like, here, let me let me cover you. Let me clothe you. I mean, that's essentially what Christ has done. That same that same sweet moment God God has here. Mm-hmm. So then we have the epilogue uh, verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever dot 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 therefore the lord god sent him out from the garden of eden to work the ground from which he was taken he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life um i you know that's a pretty that's a pretty like high concept uh a picture you know <laughs> yeah. a flaming sword that turned every way and this guarding the tree of life um what do you think the tree of life is is there is this is this actually another tree whose fruit would actually bestow immortality sounds like it yeah i mean that, that's the straightforward reading of it yeah you know I, I think ultimately the tree of life is going to become the cross um and and you see that when you when you get to the cross here's jesus who has been spending his ministry saying you know this is my body take and eat this is my blood take and drink right it's going to bring eternal life and he's hung on a tree. You know, the New Testament repeatedly calls the cross a tree. And so those who partake of this tree will live forever. Um, but it's interesting, like the reasoning that God gives in this this epilogue, as you called it, as he says, get them out of here. Otherwise, they'll live forever. And you go, now, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, Jesus came on a mission to give us eternal life, Right. Well, why why bother with the cross? Like Jesus didn't have to die. He could they could have just left the garden open and said, "Oh, you're sinful now. No problem. Here, just come eat of this this tree of life. You'll you'll live forever." But it shows you the priority of God is not to make man live forever. Mm-hmm. If it's just to live forever sinfully, that would be worse, right? That the idea of living forever sinfully would be worse than people perishing, and so. What God does with the cross is he allows you to live forever in righteousness. Mm -hmm. And that is the goal of God. It's not just for you to live forever. Like when we talk about salvation, we say, oh, you know, if you have Jesus, you can have eternal life. You know, that's a huge bonus, right? That's a huge – like God wants that. He wants you to live forever, but he wants you to live forever 
righteously. Mm-hmm. And so when he had the chance to avoid the cross by saying, hey, you can just eat of the tree of life, God says, no, I don't want you to live forever in this condition. Yeah. And thank the Lord, because I don't want to live forever <laughs> in this, condition, <laughs> in this no. condition. Well, the next time that I see the, well, not the next time, but uh, it, when I think of the the tree of life, uh, my brain goes to Revelation 22, um, beginning of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. If that's if that right there isn't the restoration of the garden, I don't know what is. I mean, just this idea that there will, they, the, there will be no more curse. There will be, you know, we'll be able to eat and be and it's to wonderful. eat the tree of life, the, the healing of nations. I mean, just and they will reign forever. Fruitfulness in every season. In other words, there's yep. no more seasons of death. Like everything is just an abundance of life and perfection. Way better, by the way, than Eden ever was. Yeah. Permanence, like it's eternal yeah. and it's fixed and it's yours. And by the way, you didn't earn it and you can't lose it. Yeah. Everything Thing is made perfect and permanent. And one of the things, you know, that's in this passage when it talks about how God stationed the cherubim on the east side with the sword and everything else, you know, when when God gives the instructions for the construction of the temple and the tabernacle, God dwelled in a place called the Holy of Holies. It was the, the inner sanctum of the temple. It was the room where God dwelled with the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. And on the veil, when God gives the instructions, so there's this really, really thick veil that nobody was allowed to go beyond because then you'd be in God's presence. But on that veil, he instructed Solomon, I want you to stitch into this veil the image of cherubim. And so now you fast forward to the the day of the cross when Jesus gives his life on the cross. When he dies, we're told that there was a massive earthquake that shook through that region. And one of the things that it did is it shook the temple and it ripped the temple veil. Um, And so think about that. What's going on there? Well, the temple veil existed to keep a barrier between God and man. And on that temple veil was the image of the cherubim, which were always considered the the angels that guarded God from the presence of sinful man. Mm -hmm. When Jesus dies and that veil is torn apart and those angels, in a sense, are dispatched, what it's saying is now there's a pathway to Revelation 22 the tree of life. Now you're righteous. You can come into the presence of God and paradise again. Mm. The angels have been dispatched. Come back into the garden. Yeah. Well, I think we'll let that stand as our last word on Genesis chapter three. Um, this has been fun. I've, I've really enjoyed going through the, the imagery for that. There's so much good stuff in uh, Genesis three. We hope that you have enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable to you. We're going to be picking up in Genesis four with the story of Cain and Abel. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so things are about so to get good. wild in here. So good. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of good stuff yet to come, but uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this look at Genesis chapter three. Uh, we do invite you to correspond with us. If you have something that you'd like to ask us or a comment you'd like to make, our email address is out of water at riovistachurch.com. You can also go to our website and find all of the back episodes of Out of Water Podcast by going to riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com and forward slash out of water. Or you can find us, as always, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify. Sam and I will be back with Genesis 4 next time, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.